We live in a world plagued by pornography, and people are looking for help. When an individual struggles with pornography, they often turn to their church leader for that help. How does a leader help a person overcome the shame of this issue and start seeing positive progress? How can a leader help youth to open up about struggles with pornography? What are some lasting, proven tactics that actually make a difference? In order to help, Leading Saints has created the Liberating Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of those most popular sessions are available to watch now. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now or visit leadingsaints.org liberating. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to access the three most popular sessions of the Liberating Saints Library. Welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation, much like this podcast. We have articles at leadingsaints.org you should check out. A weekly newsletter you should subscribe to also has unique content. So let's jump into this week's episode. Today, I, uh, I'm not flying solo today. I have uh, Stephen Shields on as a co-host with me today. You're a former guest, Stephen, and uh, well-known among the Leading Saints audience. How are you today? KF, as you are now <laughs> going to be known by your Leading Saints audience, I'm always happy to be here and super excited to be here with our guest. Yeah. So Jay Stringer, the author of Unwanted, How Sexual Behavior Reveals Our Way to Healing. Jay, how are you? <laughs> Kurt, Stephen, good to be with you. I don't know if you all know this. I broke both my elbows. Uh, no way. About two weeks ago. So I are y'all casted up or no? I mean, part of the thing with an elbow injury is that you get slings on for about two days, and then they want you into physical therapy pretty quickly after that, just to make sure it doesn't get stiff. So it's, I mean, it's been a circus. <laughs> was it the longboard, Jay? I mean, what what did it? <laughs> it was not the longboard. It was an electric scooter. Oh, uh, really? Oof. And yeah, I mean, the the paradox of my body has just been like, I ran a marathon, but that morning my wife had to get me dressed, like had to get That's... my socks on, had to get a shirt on <laughs> wow. because I'm not, I don't have full mobility and I'm waking up pretty consistently through the night just in pain, usually 3 or 4 a.m. So I, I've had better better months. Than oh, my this, goodness. But, oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm excited to be here and dive into our conversation. That's great. I'm glad well, we cleared that because I was getting way ticked off that you didn't wave at us. I was like, what's this big problem? <laughs> <laughs> but now I'm just yeah, trying to come to passion. I got more... <laughs> It's like the John McCain arms, right? Like you can only go so high, right? So. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I'm getting a little bit further each day. So Awesome. Now, Jay, you are not a Latter-day Saint, but a Christian for sure. How do yes. you sc- describe your, your faith background? So I grew up, uh, my dad was a Protestant minister, grew up in the Presbyterian tradition. And then I went out to seminary. So I got my Master of Divinity and my Master's of Counseling Psychology. So I'm an ordained minister in oh, cool. a Reformed church. And then also most of my work is as that Master of Counseling Psychology student. So the MACP has gotten me all my work since graduating from seminary and grad school. So great. And I always have to ask when we have a non-Latter-day Saint on the Leading Saints podcast, (laughs) uh, any specific experience, whether it's positive, negative, or really strange with uh, other Latter-day Saints or Mormons, as we're often referred to, that comes to mind? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the first thing that always comes to mind is just in the word integrity. I mean, I think you all have been so hospitable to me. I mean, I think it's there's been so many organizations that I've partnered with. And so I think I've just always seen this kind of, especially among leaders, like this, this 
very firm conviction that something needs to be done about this issue, but also Mm -hmm. what are the resources, what's the kindness that we can begin to extend to this. So yeah, I'm deeply encouraged by just what you all are doing to even have this conversation. So that's always the first thing that comes to mind is integrity and compassion with regard to what you all are doing. So... (laughs) All right, good. I was I was worried yeah. of a of a strange yeah. interaction. So this is good. <laughs> but it, it's not just a Latter Day Saint issue. It's a Protestant issue. It's like yeah. any community that tends to have some level of purity, holiness. It begins to kind of set up this kind of zone of secrecy, where rather than really believing that the gospel enters into our heartache, actually incarnates God's self into places of misery throughout human history, we tend to think that we need to be able to clean it all up for God and Jesus. And I just don't find that to be true theologically. And so I think anytime there's a tradition that, you know, deeply wants to honor God, remain some level of purity, sexual integrity, it's going to set up something of hiding and a lack of education around understanding our bodies. So I think that's just the challenge of a lot of faith traditions these days is we have not adequately prepared our men and women for the bodies that they're entering and understanding of sex and sexual health. And we can dive into all those themes later, but it's just, it's a huge challenge for any faith-based organization community. Yeah. And so I'm curious, like, you know, there's lots of leaders listening and and they're, and I remember being that, that bishop who seeing individual come in time and time again, just struggling and getting to the point of like, okay, well, I've shared all those scriptures I usually share. And uh, I've said all those things I usually say, like, like what's going on? Like, how do you frame this, this topic in a way that is actually encouraging that uh, leaders can mm-hmm. say, Hey, you know, there's actually a way forward to help people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think part of what the church has really failed at is to be able to make this something that needs to be managed. Right. And so, mm-hmm. Usually when someone is struggling with some form of sexual brokenness, it's a sense of, well, you should probably get some relationship around this. Let's break the shame and bring you into community, which I'm all for. Maybe let's try and get you some internet monitoring on your computer. And it's essentially, let's put up fences and guardrails around temptation. But it doesn't ever address something of the core issue. And so a lot of what I did with my book, Unwanted, was to research about 4,000 men and women to get a sense of what is actually driving this. Because we know it's ubiquitous. We know that a third of all marriages will be impacted by infidelity. We know that about 57 to 64% of our faith leaders are struggling or have struggled with this. I'm sure it's much higher than that. We know that most of our communities are deeply struggling with this. And yet, the primary approach that we have invited them to entertain is this notion of trying to manage something. And so a lot of my research looked at what were the core drivers, the key drivers that actually influence people to pursue pornography, to pursue that extramarital affair, to buy sex. And essentially what the research showed was that our unwanted sexual behaviors are not random at all. They're a direct reflection of the parts of our story that remained unaddressed. And so you know, the bell that I constantly ring with regard to my work is that unwanted sexual behavior is a roadmap to healing, not a life sentence to sexual shame or sexual addiction. So I think, you know, as leaders, we need to be able to invite people to confess, to be able to talk about the brokenness of their lives, and then be able to say the brokenness actually provides keys, it provides clues into the healing that God actually has for you. So, I mean, I think all of this is true. Like if I'm struggling with anxiety, the anxiety is trying to get my attention of being able to say, something is overwhelming to me and I don't know how to process that. That anxiety doesn't need to be managed. It needs to be listened to. Same thing with depression. If I'm struggling with depression, I need to talk about that. And a good leader will say, you know, my guess is this isn't just a chemical imbalance. That might be part of it. But also, when did the depression really begin to solidify and cement in your life? And then lo and behold, you're in the stories of heartache. You're in those stories of something happened to me and I had no one to be able to talk through about that. And depression is the fruit of that. And so I think, you know, I think this is a reframe of not just trying to manage or heal 
unwanted behaviors, unwanted mental health conditions. I mean, we want healing eventually, but first we need to be able to be curious about what is the symptom? What is the struggle actually trying to communicate to people? And I think as leaders, we need to be able to listen to the stories that informed the actual struggle that they're in. And I love this the concept of... because. Oftentimes, as a leader, as an individual would come in and, and maybe confess a sin, I would mm-hmm. see that sin as a form of cancer. Like, we need to rid this, this spiritual body of this cancer. We need to stop it. We need to avoid it. And so, that's where the guardrails go up, right? But mm-hmm. how you frame it, it's almost like seeing it as like a roadmap. Like, wow, like now God is giving us information actually through this experience that we can, we can learn from. But that, like my... The inner pastor in me feels like, oh, like, no, we can't, we can't say right. that anything's good about this experience, about this sin. Yes. Yeah. That's well said. That's the bind is that we, I mean, it, it, in some ways, it is very much a cancer. It destroys people's lives. It seeps them in shame. It causes massive amounts of debris within marriages. It, it, it destroys so much about people's lives. So I think we do need to have that sense of like this, this is something of a cancer, it will destroy our lives. But at the same time, we need to be able to be curious about the stories that informed it if we're going to heal it, because it, it just keeps coming back in the way that we currently have it set up. So that's, I think, just the big invitation is that our unwanted behaviors of all kinds are really the doorway to the wider work of the gospel to bring healing to our lives. And sometimes these unwanted sexual behaviors are the most honest dimension of our life. And that's the way that we need to be able to see it. So, you know, just two quick research findings from my study is that we found that men who were struggling with a lack of purpose were seven times more likely to use pornography than those who were not struggling with a lack of purpose. So, the lack of purpose were people who didn't feel like they liked their careers. They looked back at their life and saw a lot of failures. They didn't feel like they could get any momentum going in their life. And if that was their story, again, seven times more likely to increase their level of pornography use. So even that stat ought to be an invitation for a leader, for someone struggling to be able to say, if you don't really like your life, there's a lot of squatters that are going to come to dwell <laughs> inside your house. And so you can't, if you don't like your life, you're never going to take authority over it. And so that's not just take a, you know, a class on purpose, but it's to be able to say like, what do you most want out of life? And so much of what pornography and unwanted behaviors do is that they begin to destroy the nature of desire. So when I begin to think about desire, desire is bad. Desire brings me into unwanted sexual behavior. Desire is a cancer that needs to be rooted out. And it's like, no, desire is actually beautiful. It's the fount of life. It's vitality. And pornography has stolen, it's manipulated the desire that God has given to us. And so, so much of this is not about quitting unwanted behavior. It's about reclaiming desire so that I can actually long for what is good, true, and beautiful. And so that civil war with desire is what every man and woman struggling with unwanted behavior is, is dealing with. And so we've got to engage the civil war and invite people to reclaim, take authorship, authority over those behaviors. Well, and I, I hope every leader plays that back and hears that part because I feel like a lot in my recovery process, even starting it was, this is bad, so you have to get this out. But internally, my story and my desires are wrapped up in that. So it's hard for me to untangle that just I'm bad, right? Just right. this core of who I am is bad. And so it's like, <clears throat> so I'm like, I need to, because I remember I was, I was working as a commercial real estate broker. And, and I was like, I literally, I'm like, I'm probably married to the wrong person. Like I am at the wrong job. Like I literally need to scrap every piece of who I am. Like I need to throw out my story because it internally, even without knowing it at the time, the correlation that you're talking is, is the, I mean, you're just speaking the truth. And so I think when that, that over message, the top is say, this needs to get cut out. You need to shut this down. It's more of, you need to transform it and do it a different way. The desire is good doing, executing the desire that way, moving it that way is going to lead to the less than right, of who you really are and not having the gospel fully alive in you. Um, but I, I love how you said that because so often it's like, 
I had someone recently in my office that I'm like, so if you just weren't looking at porn, life would be great. Like if we just like plucked that behavior out and they're like, yep, everything would be perfect. Right. And no, so, and, I'm, and I'm like, oh, they have not connected with their heart. They don't. Mm-hmm. We're just we're getting started. And so often I think that's the approach as a church leader is like, if we can just get this behavior, if we can just get this, this chess piece off the board, then great. We're good. You're coming to church. You're in the faith community, raising your kids, whatever. And um, we're good to go. But and then frustrated why that piece just can't get thrown off and cake and eat it too. It, precisely. Yeah. Just that sense uh, that you described, Stephen, of like, you know, that core belief that something about you is wrong. Uh, something about you is flawed, broken, like, I, I don't like this life. That's what we need to be able to hold in tension is that all forms of kind of unwanted behavior provide us a relief from that, but they also provide us with a confirmation that that is true. And that's the razor's edge that you have to walk with people is, yes, unwanted sexual behavior can be a form of self-medicating. It does provide relief from those toxic messages. But if we're honest, each time we indulge in overeating, watching Netflix for five hours, watching porn, really doesn't matter what it is. It confirms the core belief that something about me is broken, something about me wastes time something about me will never get this right. And so as faith leaders, that's what we want to be able to do. We want to be able to invite people to honor that, yes, your unwanted sexual behavior provides some form of relief from all this madness and shame that you're experiencing. And it actually intensifies all of that shame, all of that misery that you're feeling. And you quote uh, Bruce Marshall in the introduction. He said, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. And I love this framing of reclaiming desire because as a church leader, when that individual walks in my office to confess this, like I really don't know what to do. So to get in the mind frame of I'm here to figure out how to help this individual reclaim their desire and find purpose in a way because they're not finding that purpose. So they're they're returning to the porn or the the unhealthy sexual behavior to numb out or to find purpose there, which it'll never be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, anything else as far as like, you know, you talk about this concept of of listening and creating that space to listen. Any advice on how that's done, like for a church leader? Because it's easy, and I hear it all the time, and I did it. Like the person walks in, and you default to behaviors like, okay, well, how's your internet filters? How's you know, <laughs> are you accountable to your wife? Are you you know, on and on and on. Well, where do we start to begin to actually create space to listen? Anything, any advice you'd give to a leader in that scenario? Yeah, yeah, you got to get to story. I mean, so much, I mean, I don't know what exact percentage of the Bible is story, but stories are what changes the human heart. And so if you are just giving practical suggestions, it will never work. That's not the way that God shows up in human mm-hmm. history is to give practical suggestions and why the church has defaulted to practical fences and suggestions is, I mean, I was going to say beyond me, but I just want to bang my head against a wall and just be a wailing like, what in the world are we doing? And so, as I look at scripture, I mean, just look at a couple examples. Adam and Eve have eaten of the tree that they are commanded not to eat from. God doesn't show up to Adam and say, listen, buddy, you need to bounce your eyes from that next tempting piece of fruit. (laughs) God shows up and says, where are you? To Hagar, who has an immense history of trauma that was actually inflicted on her by the first family of our faith. The angel of the Lord shows up to her in a place of trauma, in a place of wilderness and says, like, where do you come from and where are you going? Jacob, same exact thing. Like, I mean, Guy is just a rascal struggling his entire life with his identity. And God says, like, what is your name? And so, like, if we're paying attention to the angel of the Lord, the God of the universe, God shows up within difficult situations and asks questions like, where are you? What's going on? Where do you come from? Where are you going? So, just those two questions that the angel of the Lord asks Hagar in Genesis 16, Every faith leader needs to be asking those people of like, you know, where do you come from? What is your history with this struggle? What is your history with this particular sexual fantasy? At what point did something of your sexual story lose innocence? 
at what point did you begin to feel something of evil begin to twist something of this goodness of sexuality that God has made? What was your family of origin like? What was your relationship like with your mother, your father? Where were you first exposed to porn? Who introduced you to it? What are the sexual fantasies that you actually seek out? So I think if we can begin to get into questions, we're going to get into stories. And when we can get into those stories, we can help people connect the dots between the present unwanted sexual behavior and the past. And I would say that has to be the goal for every church leader within this area is you have to be able to build a bridge between the unwanted sexual behavior in the present with the past underlying pain and kind of harm to someone's sexual story. So until that bridge is actually constructed, you will inevitably consign people to fight the same battle over and over again without any invitation to help them understand the real battle that they are facing. And so that's the work is build the bridge between the unwanted behavior in the present to maybe marital dynamics, maybe unaddressed trauma, maybe heartache, maybe abandonment, family of origin issues. So all that sense of you've got to help people connect the dots to be able to see what's happening in their story. Yeah. My mind, you know, as a as a bishop, I often it's easy to project my story onto them, right? Like you know, you, you've grown up in the church like I I did, and I don't have this problem. So there must be something like you just have to, you know, tighten down your routines or something. You know, you, are you exercising often, right? And we sort of project that feeling, but to step back and say, no, I'm I'm actually going to hear their story, where they've come from. But then that gets me to a place where I think, like, I'm not the guy to to do that and unpack that. And you start talking about trauma and pain and you know history of this uh, abuse. And then I'm like, I, I, let's just give it to the therapist. We, we just need to get you mm-hmm. to the therapist and, and they'll handle it. And so sometimes I grapple with what my role as a leader is in that scenario when, wow, this person is now, now trauma is in the conversation. Like, I, I don't even want to mm-hmm. go there. I don't know how to handle yeah. it. Yeah. So the, I mean, it, great point. So that, that sense of like what, I forget who exactly has this quote, but essentially like we are harmed in relationships and we are healed in relationships. And so that sense of, you know, so much everybody coming in to talk to you has had some level of relational harm, which is what? It's the category of betrayal. And so that sense of like, I don't really trust people to be able to hold my story well, to be able to be there with me in the difficulties of my life. And so part of what you know, as a faith leader, as a bishop, like you are beginning to offer a different type of template for relationships. So maybe they had a mother or father that didn't actually ask them any questions about their life. They went through all of middle school without a sense of like, how are you? Where do you come from? What do you want out of your life? And so the moment that you begin to ask curious and kind questions, you are reframing, offering a new template for what relationship could be like. And so you don't have to be an expert in understanding sexual trauma, but you need to read The Body Keeps the Score. You need to read some books that will be able to help you understand the nature unwanted. of trauma. You should read the book Unwanted. And, and <laughs> By the a guy book named Unwanted. Jay you could want it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. But yeah, you need to read a couple books to be able to understand, to be able to have fluency in language. But that curiosity, that sense of like, I can look at your face and hear your story and not wince and not turn away, but I'm here. I'm with you. I'm for you. And then, yeah, you address some stuff that's above my pay grade or kind of outside of my specialty. And yeah, there's a couple really good therapists that are out there that I do refer to. So I think that's the point is you don't have to be an expert, but you do have to be able to see the holy privilege that you have of offering people a new template for what relationship and kindness could look like. Yeah. Well, as being someone sitting in that office and sharing, what people need more than anything, I think, is just hope poured into that story. And even just being able to sit with that story, literally just being able to sit with that person as they share their story. I've even seen that in a therapeutic setting as being extremely powerful. For someone to literally just speak their story is so huge. And oftentimes people don't actually need advice. And as as we know in our faith, right? Like Christ is the one who's going to restore them. And so 
they actually probably don't need an answer from you. They just need the safe place to talk about it, to discover or rediscover, right? The truth of their desire and their stories, you said so well. And because God's going to give it to them, like God's got the answer. He's willing to talk to them direct. He's willing to drop them the dial. Like he doesn't, you know, it's like it's happened. It's going to come. And I just think of the best interactions I've had with church leaders and supportive people have been when I'm just able to talk and they're in a hopeful place, they're in a kind place and a compassionate place. And I'm able to walk up and be like, oh, wait, those dots totally connect for me. And then have God come into that moment and be like, yes, my son, yes. And it's like, oh, that's there. I mean, I remember one leader, he's like, do you really think like he's mad at you or forgiven you? And I'm like, I think so. He's like, why don't we just ask him right now? Knell in prayer right there. So powerful. He's not a therapist. He doesn't even know anything about all this, right? Mm -hmm. So I just think connecting what you said earlier about story and just being willing to hold that place, so much of the process quotation mark that's going to happen is going to happen internally with them anyways. And that's true even Mm -hmm. when they do therapy. You don't go to therapy to get advice. That's a therapist isn't just there to give you a bunch of advice. They're there to get you in your story and guide you and allow you to do that self-discovery and processing. So yeah, I mean, when you put those two together, you don't have to have the, the two PhDs or to hold some space and have a big impact, at least in what I have experienced people have. Beautiful. Yep. Yeah. And, and I love the framing that you offer here, Jay, as far as like, as that person walks in, your role as a bishop or as a leader is to offer them relationship, right? That you're not there to, oh, I've got the five-step plan that's going to solve this this issue, right? But it's more of like, I just want to sit with you in this. Like, I want to understand mm-hmm. as much as I possibly can the pain that you're experiencing right now and the frustration of it all. And and to know that at least I'm at church and you and you have a place with next to me in, in the pew, you know, and I want to be there for you. And, and communicating that so well that it could be several, you know, interactions before you even get to the the details of of the sin, right? But offering them relationship can go so far in yeah. this process. And that's, I mean, exactly what you two are sh- sharing. Like, I mean, I think we really need to take seriously that we are image bearers of God, right? And so, in the image of God, He created them male and female. So, when yeah. we actually listen, when we ask questions, when we extend kindness, compassion, understanding, slow to anger, eager to offer mercy, we are imaging the God that we serve. And so that sense of like, we become a new template for understanding who God might be like, if we were to meet God. And so that sense of, you know, most of us transfer on, you know, some image of an authority figure, an angry father onto the image of God. So William Paul Young once said, like, it took me all of 50 years to wipe the face of my father off of the face of God. And that's a lot of times what happens is that we begin to project an image of like this very stern father, who's just kind of or just like a stern coach on the sidelines, just kind of like kicking up the dirt, so angry with us that we're not able to get our act together. But part of, again, the holiness of just being able to be in leadership is to begin to image bear a new understanding of what God might be like, what authority might be like. And that's what we need is we need more symbols. We need more people to be able to give us a sense of this is what kindness, this is what goodness, this is what curiosity looks like within relationship. Yeah. So Jay, I was talking to a bishop just a few weeks ago and he was talking, you know, we were talking about just this this issue of unhealthy sexual behavior of porn, and we were talking in the context of you know the men's group in our in our church, and and I was saying that yeah, it's probably I'd guess anywhere to fifty to seventy five percent of these men are engaging in porn to some level or unhealthy sexual behavior to some level, and he was sort of frustrated. He thought, you know, I you're probably right, but they're not coming to me, you know, and and he sort of had this feeling of like I want to be the leader where where these individuals come to me and they feel safe and do all these things. But in you know, I've observed his leadership. It's not like he's doing anything wrong or he's not shaming or he's not just doing the porn lesson again and again and again. Like he seems like a guy that people should feel safe with. And so what are your thoughts on maybe leaders who know the problem is there at a greater extent, 
but they're having a hard time sort of teasing it out of them to, to come and, and talk with them and find deeper healing in their journey. Mm-hmm. Yes, it needs to be talked about. I mean, I think part of every faith leader's kind of understanding is that you offer something of a normative role within your community. And normative just being like, if you're going to teach on Matthew 5, right, it's the issue of lust and anger, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you're not intersecting those two themes within a particular teaching to begin to talk about unwanted sexual behavior of we all have lust, but we all have anger. So, you know, the nature of James 4 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, you want something and you don't get it. So you end up killing. Well, how many people within marriages want more sex, more intimacy, more connection, and then they don't get it and they become angry. And then what happens within their anger is that that's the context of them going to porn. And so I think as a leader, you want to begin to share more stories kind of coming out of people's lives. So same thing with, you know, Second Samuel 13 the rape of Tamar uh, and a lot of sexual abuse that exists within that family in the cover-up that happens. Well, if you're not going to talk about 2 Samuel 13 through the lens of sexual abuse and how common it is, then people are not going to just kind of volunteer, well, here's what I'm struggling with. So I think as a leader, you want to be able to talk about these things and not just kind of consign these issues to church basements of like, these are something that's just men are struggling with. We need to be able to see sex as an area of discipleship. And right now we just see it as something that like, if you're struggling, if you're perverse, if you're struggling, you know, get into a 12 step, go to the basement, there's something wrong with you rather than saying like, no, we have, we as the church need to talk extensively about sex and understanding God's design for sex. And how evil can twist it and what ends up happening within our lives. So I think there's so many opportunities to begin to kind of, you know, use language, speak honestly about sex, about sexual brokenness, and then offer groups, offer small groups uh, of being able to say, you know, we're going to read Julie Slattery's book, Rethinking Sexuality, and Jay Stringer's book, Unwanted, and kind of look at God's design for sex, but then also look at where sex gets messed with. Mm. And this isn't just an issue for men struggling with porn, even though there's a lot of you out there. (laughs) This is an issue for our entire community to really begin to grapple with. So it's got to be talked about, or it's always going to be in silence. So the idea of shame is when I am in shame, you know, as Stephen put really well, like I'm convinced that something about me is terrible, unworthy of love or belonging, as Brené Brown says. And so the notion that like, I'm going to feel terrible about myself and then tell people more about that, like, no, like that's a Petri dish of shame if I have to talk more about it. So I think we just, we need to understand that shame convinces us to remain silent, that every word we can and will every word that we say can and will be used against us. And so as a leader, you want to invite people to talk honestly about it, but then extend the conversation outside of just sexual brokenness to sexual health and the design of sex. And I think as a a leader, just assume that they've had poor experiences with their story. And that may be poor experiences with, that might be church hurt, right? That might be poor experience with previous church leaders, but it might just be poor experience within their family, within just other adult figures in their youth, with, right, whatever it is. But like, just assume, right, because shame is transferred person to person. If I was on an island by myself, I wouldn't have any shame. So it's like, by default, if this person is having this unwanted behavior and shame is present, we know as leaders by default, They have already had bad experiences. So I've had 10 experiences that have deeply impacted my life or a hundred or whatever it is before I ever set foot into the church or into your office or into that front lawn conversation or at the church party or even in the church basement that has told me you are totally going to judge me. You are going to reaffirm that I am unwanted. You are not going to want me like everyone else doesn't want me. Like they are coming in hot, already assuming the worst about you then that's not a take it personal. That has been their experience or that shame wouldn't be there. And I think too often leaders look at what you're saying, they're like, oh, well, I'll just assume 
that they know because I'm I'm here and I'm in a church capacity that I have love. And I'm like, I, my suggestion would be assume the opposite because that probably has been their experience or those are the experiences that have kept them from doing this thing and being open about the story. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, this concept of, of vulnerability, you know, and I love this, you know, how to start talking about it where, and it's definitely the model that God's given us, right? Like he wanted to teach us things. So he gave us a book full of stories, right? That we can mm-hmm. go to, to hear other stories and then reflect them on our own story. You know, in our, in our faith tradition, I'm sure it's found elsewhere, but just this concept of vulnerability of like stepping forward and being like the person that raised their hand and says, Hey, I feel broken and unwanted. Anybody else here? Like, it's so easy to sort of put this pose on walking into church and whatnot. And even this past Sunday, somebody in, in our men's group said, uh, said, oh, I, you know, he started comment out with, I remember a time when I was going through the 12 step program and I, I literally said, amen, hallelujah. Like I was just so glad that he was willing to step forward and say, I've struggled with stuff, you know? So any, as far as this concept of vulnerability and, and, uh, the power of it, or what do we need to understand about vulnerability in the context of our church walls? So many things come to mind. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think of one of my mentors, uh, you know, when I was in seminary, just always went back to Matthew 5. And like, you know, the nature of sin is lust and anger. And when you lust, you're an adulterer. And when you are, you know, angry, there's murder. And so, I mean, he kind of would always kind of make the joke, but also the confession of, Hi, I'm Dan. I'm an adulterer and a murderer. And that was like one of the first experiences of like, oh, it's just, yeah, that's true of every human heart. And so then to have him speak honestly about the nature of anger in his own life, that was just like, wow, I don't think I've ever heard a faith leader begin to talk openly about some of the struggles and the wars within his own heart. And I would say like, yeah, just a lot of the leaders that I respect so much. It, it is that experience of like, they're not condemned by their stories, but as they begin to interact with their stories, they deeply believe that the Spirit of God is going to be at work within them. So one of the images that I always think about is there's, there's a Japanese form of art called kintsugi. And it's basically like, the, you should look it up if you are at a device that you're able to, but it's basically like there's a broken piece of pottery and that question of what are you going to do with it? And a lot of people throw it out, but what Kintsugi does is it, it literally means golden repair. And so the artist basically puts the pieces of pottery back together and then fills it with a golden filament that begins to offer the repair. And so when you see the piece done, it's stunning but you can actually see where the cracks were, where the vulnerability of the piece was. And so Kintsugi actually sees the brokenness of the pottery as an essential component to the beauty. And I think that that's the point of the gospel is like it actually highlights the brokenness, the wounds. So, I mean, Jesus could have very easily gotten rid of his scars and healed them, but he allows his scars to remain. Why? Because they tell a story of love. They tell a story of sacrifice. They tell a story of Jesus Christ's commitment to us. And that's what we we don't want to hide the scars. We want to give context for those scars to be told because we're not the hero of the story. Jesus is. And so that sense of when I am vulnerable it's not just vulnerable for the sake of my own mental health. I'm actually serving something of the crucifixion, something of the resurrection in my honesty with regard to vulnerability. So it's good for our mental health, but it also makes known something of the vulnerability of God on our behalf. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Powerful. Steve, any thoughts, questions coming to mind? Well, the the saying that I got from my, my friend, Mark, Mark Pimsler, is he says, you know, share your scars, not your wounds when you're in a leadership role. And so, you know, it's not the time when someone comes in confessing about their marriage to be like, I'm actually thinking about getting divorced too. And that's what we call counter-transference. That's where now you are holding space for me, not the other way around. But I think, I mean, you know, my favorite word in the world is unashamed. And to be completely unashamed about the scars and and the saviors, I mean, it could not be clear what Jay just said, right? I mean, his intention with that. And so I think scars, you know, share 
all day long. An open wound right now? Yeah, probably not. Probably not the thing to share in a sermon or in that group or in that confession. Probably not. But, you know, the scar, that's why they're there. That's why, you know, God says, hey, I'm not going to remember your sin anymore, but why do we? Because we need to tell that story. God's not going to hold our story against us or our sin against us. But he absolutely wants us to share it and share our scars and say, look what Christ has done to what Jay said. That's how God is being able to share his light through us. Look at what he's done in my life. I was dead and now I'm alive. I'm a new creature. It's, it's possible. It's happened. Yeah. And Jay, I'm curious, like the, you know, obviously with this topic, it's easy to default to the, the male gender and the problems there and whatnot. But what do we need to understand and what, do you, what have you seen in your research as far as men and women in this context? You know, with, what do we need to know about women and unhealthy sexual behavior? Yeah, I mean, a third of all marriages will be impacted by infidelity. I think the percentages of who the cheating spouse is is slightly higher for the men, but there's a lot of women that have affairs. About a third of all pornography users are now women as well. Hmm. And so, yeah, just Kurt, such a great question to even raise that of, you know, again, we can't just make this a men's basement issue. This is like a rite of passage for so many people. The average age of exposure to porn for boys is usually seven to eight. And then for girls, it's like eight to 10, depending on the research study that you're looking at. So again, this is just an issue that's not a male issue. It's not a female issue. This is a human issue. Um, And so, you know, some of what we found in the research was that, you know, men and women who had past histories of sexual abuse we're like 24% more likely to become more significantly involved in pornography than those who did not have past histories of abuse. Mm. And so, uh, you know, for a lot of women, you know, sometimes there's that experience of having a, a past history of sexual abuse that sets a sexual template where they feel a lot of shame, maybe feel out of control. And, then in their pornography use, in their unwanted sexual behavior or promiscuity, they begin to reenact some of those core themes that were true of their childhood. And this is for men and women. So I think we just, yeah, really being able to kind of say this is, again, back to that notion of this is a human issue that affects all of us is the place to begin. Yeah. And is there any a different approach that we should keep in mind or is it the same you know, the same principles apply as far as, you know, offering relationship, hearing their story, those types of things. Is uh, is there any different approach that maybe leaders should consider? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I find with a lot of women, there there's a sense of like, they never felt like they had their own sexual story. And so, whether it was being, I mean, just some of the stats of like one in three women will know some history of past sexual abuse. The amount of women that will know some experience of a sexual assault or an unwanted sexual advance within the course of their college experience. And then the issue that a lot of times people begin to think about sex as more of a man's desire and a man's right. And so a lot of women basically just orbit their sex and their sexuality around what they think their husband wants. And so, so much of women is just that sense of like, where has your voice been taken away? Where has where have men done a lot of harm against you? And so I think those are the stories to begin to hear is like, when did something of sexuality become stolen for them? When did it feel like an act of manipulation? And then again, what does it look like for them to begin to take authority over what they want sexually? And so a lot of times, you know, just the issue of pornography becomes something that was introduced to them. It was just something that found them, but it's not something that brings them life in an experience of goodness and connection. And so I think that's the big kind of takeaway is not just change your unwanted behaviors, but would sexual like if you were to imagine a healthy sexual life, what would that even look like for you and how could you get there? So I think just trauma is about fragmentation. It takes away imagination and healing recovery are about kind of integrating the pieces of your story from the fragments and then engaging in imagination all over again of what your sexual story could look like if healed from the work of evil and the harm of other men and women in your life. Yeah. Going back to this concept of relationship and 
you know, from reading your book, it, it seems like this, uh, you know, community offering community or a community for an individual connection is going to be a big player in somebody's healing and recovery. Uh, from a church leader standpoint, it's sort of like, uh, you know, maybe we don't know what to do that other than maybe, hey, you need to go to more church activities. You know, we need you here on Sunday because mm-hmm. you need community or let me assign you two or three friends. All right. And uh, you're going to like these people and they're going to offer you community. Right. So any yes. thoughts as far as like the way to effectively get people connected or into a community so that they can find that connection? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, connection is so important for recovery, but I think sometimes that can kind of be presented as the silver bullet. So people, mm. there's a good Ted talk out there where the guy basically argues that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And you'll never hear me disagree with that. So, you know, if you are struggling with addiction, like it is good to be able to connect with other people, men and women that are on a similar journey to you. But people also need to be able to tolerate being alone. And so like, you know, with various forms of homeopathy or a snake bite, right? Like you actually need to ingest a little bit of the venom (laughs) in and of itself in order Mm. to heal. Sometimes that's what we need to be able to learn how to be on our own and know how to find our window of tolerance, know how to find calm. Like this is the language of Psalm 131, like for I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child is my soul within me. So that's the balance is we need to be able to invite people to find what we in the field call affect regulation, which is basically the ability to calm yourself down to be able to notice when you're stressed and find calm. So we need to do that individually, but then interpersonally, as you put well, like we need to be able to have that connection. So my advice Mm -hmm. there would be think about connection in terms of like a year long, three year process. And so does unwanted sexual behavior need to be included in that? Yes, because sex is an area of discipleship. So you know, a plug on an online course that I have is called the Journey Course. And that is used by a lot of faith leaders all across the world. And it gets people into their stories. So it allows for accountability, not just to be about the bad things that they've done, but it allows them to kind of tell their story, share their story. But I don't think you should just stay with the Journey Course. I think that eventually needs to go into some type of community engagement around purpose and desire. And if you were not so sidelined by shame and a lack of imagination, like where do you want your life to go? Is that about fathering? Is that about mothering? Is that about your career? And so we need to be able to offer community around the holistic nature of people's lives, which is going to include sex, but also relationships, but also vocation. And so I think it's just we've we've got to broaden our understanding of community. So if you're only in a basement discussing how broken you are every week, there's going to be no desire to continue that. Yeah, It will work in a season of crisis for like six months. And then you're going to be like, I'm done with this crap. (laughs) I need out. And why? Because there's more to the human heart than just something broken. We're much more afraid of our beauty and our desire than we are of our sin. Yeah. Wow, that's powerful. And I appreciate you sort of recognizing that connection is important, but it's not the silver bullet. And because we can sometimes use it as more of a distraction, like, yeah, go to activities more, you have more friends and distract yourself from this lust that you keep uh, being drawn towards. You know, in reality, it's a much more a longer process that needs that needs to unfold a little more naturally, right? Yeah, I do a lot of individual intensives with men and women and bishops and all like uh-huh. just people trying to understand their sexual story. And yeah, the guy that I saw last week without going into any details, I mean, the therapy that he was involved in the church community was, okay, what are you going to do on Monday night, Tuesday night, single guy, Monday night, Tuesday, and he, they tried to book him <laughs> seven straight nights. Yeah. And I'm like, sorry, you've got to be, I mean, let's just call him Dan, but you've got to learn how to be with Dan Yeah, because you hate him. And so these distractions, mm. you know, they're good to be able to have community, but until you can sit with your shame, sit with how much you despise yourself and transform that and become a different person. And that's the, wow. you know, a lot of people that struggle with unwanted sexual behavior 
their addiction is like, I'm always seeking a new object, a new community, a new shiny thing without ever developing themselves as the subject. And so that's a lot of my work is like, yeah, you could find a new affair partner all day long. You could find a new community all day long. But until you develop yourself and enjoy yourself as the subject, nothing will change. And I think that's, yeah, that balance of, yes, we need community, we need people. But if you despise yourself, you're going to be miserable <laughs> in oh, most wow. of your relational yeah. setting. Wow. That's so, so helpful. So insightful. Well, as we wrap up, Steve, any, any final questions or you want to ask from your, from your side? No, I mean, I, I think the, I think probably the only question I would, you know, throw out there, Jay, is, is how would you guide someone to best determine the community they find? Because I think people, that's the frustration is it's like, I should go to therapy. I, it didn't connect or to a therapy group or to a 12 step or back to church or a different church or whatever church. And um, so what's the advice, you know, that you would give someone starting the journey or if a leader's got someone sitting in front of them to find the community, because I found all communities are not the same. And so mm-hmm. there was really, for me, a sifting of like, which community like, oh, these are not the right men that are going to see my real story and call me out into what are my real desires. And so, you know, how do you just to be on that tangent still of community, how do you kind of decide like, is this the right community for me? Is it not? And how do you go about finding them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's an interview process. I mean, the the person that's seeking it out has the authority to be able to say, no, this place is not for me. Like this place feels like antiquated language. They're all they're trying to get me to do is just to like kill lust and destroy the desires of the flesh and get into accountability. That's likely not going to be very interested in your story or transformation. So, I mean, trust your gut on some of this. Like if you go in two or three times and there's just a sense of like, this is all about management and there's nobody's alive here. There's a deadness here. uh, That's a really good sign that something beautiful, life-giving. Because what, I mean, what's the gospel? It's my yoke is easy. My burden is light. This is a life of reclaiming desire. So you'll sense that in different communities. So you've got to try... Yeah, what does it feel like? But the the only kind of downside to the feelings is that, you know, part of what we have to always equip people for is the shame of unwanted sexual behavior is very painful. But once you begin to get into healing work, that healing is also painful. And we don't really prepare people for that. So it's not just like this needs to feel good all the time, but it's a sense of there's meaning being made. So as I enter into the ways that my mother harmed me. My father harmed me. That doesn't feel good, but it's actually, there's meaning here because I'm beginning to connect the dots. So you want to engage a group that has a holistic understanding of unwanted sexual behavior, trauma informed. I think about unwanted sexual behavior as like a river, no different than the Mississippi river. And so the Mississippi is so powerful. Why? Well, it's not just one river. The Missouri River flows into it. The Arkansas, the Tennessee River flow in. And so that is true of good recovery groups is they don't just see it as a lust issue. They're looking at all the different tributaries that flow into that. So I'm not being exceedingly clear, but I think that there's there's a lot of capacities of it's got to be holistic. It's got to feel life-giving. And at the same time, it's got to enter darkness. Uh, Just that experience of, yeah, we want Resurrection Sunday. But if you don't spend time with your Good Friday experiences, your Holy Saturdays, you're not going to get to Sunday. And so I think good communities are there for resurrection and goodness, but they also enter betrayal. They enter loss. Wow. And when you say you have to build that community, like you're going to have to be the one to pull those rivers together. Because I've yet to found the complete plug and play. Like, oh, here is the spot for me. And they've already got all the pieces lined up. And I just kind of got to walk in here. Mm-hmm. Right? Because it is different yeah, that, for everyone. That unicorn does exist yeah. somewhere. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, you just yeah, have right. to make it. It. Be, That's the, yeah. it might be two or three different communities. And so you can't expect it to all be found in one place either. So that's a really key point. Yeah. And, and a lot of times we can say like, well, this is God's church. So I'm sure this is where that ideal community is. But sometimes 
that church community can only give you a portion of that community that you that your heart really yeah. needs, right? And so, yeah. yeah. So, like one of my clients, when he was healing, found a twelve step community. Like, really glad that he had community there. But he also was developing himself as a songwriter, and so he found a community of poets and songwriters. And that was a huge portion portion of his recovery was again, engaging in creativity again, addiction steals creative energy. And so for a lot of people, they begin to see themselves like not they're going to be full time artists getting paid for their work, but they start to play the guitar more, Uh, they begin to write poetry, they begin to sing, they begin to engage in creative acts. And so you can't find that community everywhere. So it's not just one community. It's it's multiple communities. Well, and to use your words, he found they found the community of desire. Yeah, that's really helpful. Well, Jay, I've got one more question for you, but uh, I want to make sure if uh, people are interested in your work, uh, obviously they should check out your book. Capacity. It's available on clear, but I th- all major bookstores and whatnot. Uh, but if people do want to connect with you, or where, where should they seek you out and find uh, your community? Yeah, so my website is jay-stringer.com. Or if you just Google Jay Stringer Unwanted, you'll find it. And that's the hub of... I have a you know, lot of resources for church communities, assessments, things that if you want to kind of go deeper into the journey, you can keep going deeper. So yeah. uh, also on Instagram, don't really spend much time on Facebook, but yeah, Instagram occasionally. So Cool. Awesome. Well, the last question I have for you is I always like to end on a Jesus question here. And I'm just curious with, you know, with this issue, obviously, therapy is really important. You've talked about resources, communities and whatnot, but obviously the real healer is Jesus Christ. And so from your perspective, from your experience, like, how do you articulate what the healing of Jesus Christ looks like in relation Mm -hmm. to this topic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful question. Uh, So I think about... I think porn and Jesus both deeply appeal to the human heart. And why is that? Well, what does the gospel say? Like, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What does porn offer? Uh, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But then that other dimension of, you know, the work of the cross kind of takes all of my anger. It takes all of the rage within me all of the trauma within me. And so when I become a Christian, I bring my story, my trauma, my anger, my rage, and I bring it to Jesus. And I trust that Jesus will be able to take the curse upon himself in a tone for all that is not right in my life and in the world. Well, what does porn also offer to a lot of us? It gives us a place to be able to seek out revenge and anger in our lives of you know, I might be misused, abused, mistreated by a spouse or by a father or by a mother. And in the world of pornography, I can become something of a God and reduce someone else to serve me, right? And so, I think part of what Jesus offers is I know that you need rest. And at the same time, I also know that there's a place that you need to bring all of the trauma, all of the anger in your life. And so I think just, you know, in the words of Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. And are you going to serve yourself, the world of porn or Jesus? And I think that's what I feel cornered with more and more is, you know, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted by Jesus. I need comfort, but I also need a place to be able to take the curse, the shame that I feel like I'm under and that the ways that other people have harmed me and I need a place to put that. And I know of no other place in the entire universe other than the power of Jesus to be able to bring my heartache and my anger. And that's where I'm healed is through bringing my shame, my curse, my sorrow to someone who's able to hold it all. And I think that's the power of Jesus. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with 
any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.